0: I've been thinking a lot about how Chasing Squirrels started and where I've arrived. So when I first jumped into the podcast gig and looking at education, I had a very, very structured view of the questions that I thought first I wanted to pursue. But I also had a a sense of the type of questions that I thought should be asked about education. And the longer I've been doing the podcast, I think the further I've drifted from that set structure of what I think is going on and kind of floated to paying a little bit more attention to what actually is going on. The conversation that I have on this podcast with Brad Schreffler really does tap into that that moment in education where first, you know, it's it's not about, well, I gotta say it, this podcast entirely is about a whole lot of stuff that I don't know about. Contextually speaking, Brad and I teach in very different places. He's down in Orlando, I'm up here in Canada, and even though there are overlaps in our classroom experience, our teaching experience, our tech experience, we're both podcasters, there's Always moments where stark differences spark up incredible conversations. This particular episode strikes at the core of that. Soon after the Parkland shooting on February 14th, I had a blast of emotion that I wasn't quite sure how to focus. I knew that I wanted to talk about the topic of guns in schools. And I also felt as if I had to wait and notice for a little bit. I wanted to observe how the story evolved. I knew I needed more information. And ultimately, I also knew that I wanted to talk to someone directly. Most of my social feeds and my news feeds were bringing very, very different uh, angles to me. And what it kind of came down to is that I had a hard time trusting the information that was coming to me. So that was a second part of me wanting to reach out to Brad because I know that his school is within short driving distance of where the event occurred. So with that in mind, I waited, watched, researched a little bit, and just recently I reached out to Brad to ask him whether or not he would talk about this issue. And I'm happy to say that uh, he spent an hour with me and I tried as best as possible to unwind some of my questions. And I think he was more than gracious in giving both his time and his support in order for me to understand the very, very large scope within which this issue exists. It's going to take me a little bit to digest everything that we talked about. And I know for sure this will be one of those episodes that I'm going to have to dig back into just to retrack some of my steps and to understand my path and how this conversation would look within my own context. Because ultimately, I think that's what I was searching for, which was a way to talk about guns in schools. Here's the episode. All right, Brad, I'd like to welcome you to Chasing Squirrels. Do you think you could uh, throw down a, a quick introduction for yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks, Chris, for having me. You know, I'm, I'm a listener of your podcast. I listen to every episode, so to be on here is is really exciting. I'm excited about it. Um, but I am Brad Schreffler. I'm the host of the Planning Period podcast, which you can find on my website. And I'm also a curriculum resource teacher in Central Florida, uh, which means that I handle all professional development as well as uh, certification issues and mentorship for teachers and new teachers. And I'm also still holding on to a lot of my roles as the digital coach so that I have classes of student tech support where my students help with all the technology issues of their peers. But they are seven periods of students assigned to me. And for a little context for this discussion, my school is about three hours from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where the most recent Parkland shootings happened. And I live Tremendously close to the Pulse nightclub, which is where we had a shooting a few years ago or a couple years ago as well. Um, So this is a a very close to home, literally and figuratively topic for me to be talking about.
0: And it's and I can't tell you how appreciative of that you'd be open to um, chatting on Chasing Squirrels and 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 likewise, anyone interested in. God, you you cover. I think you cover a lot more varied topics than than I have. But definitely, planning pod. Uh, sorry, planning period podcast. The triple P. People got to check it out too, because beyond the, let's say this conversation where it's like podcasts collide, um, <laughs> the content you're throwing down uh, in support of of teachers and students is is good. So, uh, thanks for being here. So, you mentioned. You mentioned the event from Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your proximity to it. And, you know, the idea of home and it being very close, you said literally and figuratively. So from that's kind of my starting point. But like I kind of mentioned to you, thousands of kilometers away, watching how the discussions are evolving and kind of, I don't know, fragmenting, coming out from that that event is both fascinating and very confusing for myself and i started to get into my head that one i wanted to be able to it, i guess it's a teacher thing i wanted to be able to speak to this uh speak to not only your context but to be able to speak to just the concept of guns and schools and then started to realize i really didn't know how to do it i, I didn't know the conflict here's the tension for me there's conversations that we we stumble upon all the time and we casually call them teachable moments and then we work through whatever we're presented there there's a lot of waiting there's a lot of knowledge checking um and then there's the other ones that we feel compelled like we need to instigate as educators we you know you you read something in the newspaper in the morning and you walk into your classroom and you do that measured moment like how do I introduce this as a new concept or an idea and the guns in schools is definitely when i when i started thinking about back in the day about starting my podcast this wasn't a topic that i was going it wasn't one of those things when i started to think about my experiences in education and what i thought i would be curious about talking about or what others would be interested in talking about this was definitely not one of those subjects so i'm i'm curious for you know i guess our our leap off point is 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 currently so let's say as of this this past this past week um the those conversations in your staff room in the school in you know amongst the students what's it looking like right now so how does this i and again you're gonna have to tell me because i'm struggling for the exact <laughs> question way to come at this but what did this Topic look like when you left the school this past week.
1: It's been a really interesting evolution, and not just in the last month and a half since Parkland, but just over the course of all of these school shooting events. And I always, it always makes me think of that that old quote where you don't, you know, at a dinner table you don't talk about religion or politics, and you also don't talk about guns, at least in the U.S., because everybody has really strong opinions about it. And they're tied up in so many other issues that are not necessarily about actual guns. And it is a very hard topic to discuss. And in most cases, I would say teachers, at least in the US, it's a topic you actively avoid discussing in your classrooms because – Parents who are pro-guns are unbelievably pro-gun. And if their kid comes home and says, well, Mr. Shreffler says that we shouldn't have guns anymore, even if that's not what I actually said, that's going to become a problem because that's going to activate that parent to contact the principal or contact superintendent, and it's going to cause an issue. So historically, I would say that this is a topic that we avoid heavily. And over the the last month and a half with Parkland and with the students themselves of Parkland being so vehement and vocal about demanding change, it started to, at least for me, shift that a lot to where it was a conversation I avoided in my class for the most part up until the last month and a half. But when I got back the day after Valentine's day, it was a discussion we had with my students and it was a discussion they weren't used to having. And it, It wasn't a discussion where I played Switzerland, where I stood on the side and said, oh, well, what do you think about this? Or let me offer this counterpoint or whatever. I actually got right in the middle of it and I got involved in the discussion, which is not normally how I do things. And so but then you get flash forward to this past week, like you said, and it definitely felt like we were already starting to lose some of that this isn't the right word, but I'm going to say magic, that secret sauce. Somehow this had been different. This had felt different. And yet by the end of last week, it felt the same as it always had. We were back to people saying, yeah, we want to change, but that doesn't mean take away our guns. Yeah, we want to change, but don't bring politics into school. Like, okay, this isn't really the place for this. Let's talk about something else. Let's let the parents educate their kids and it, it felt like we were shifting back to what I call the thoughts and prayers mentality, which is where we do nothing and just imagine it's going to get better and not in the actual action and doing things that are going to make it better. So it's it's been a, I don't know if that's really a direct answer to your question, but it's been a very, very interesting month and a half as the Parkland situation has played out in the after effects.
0: I No, I think you're the way you positioned yourself in the classroom and, and and positioning yourself in the conversation would be a fence line that I would I would I would run in the same manner I don't have the same obviously I don't have the same context you know living in in Canada that you do for the the history the culture the whole belief system and not only that the, the law you know the laws supporting the the mindset around owning guns i don't have that same context but i would find myself wanting to mix it up a bit too i mean there's topics that all i think educators get fired up about and like i said that that becomes that walking in the door monday morning you think to yourself you you know you know you want to spark this convo um i think on a on just a I don't know. I guess an energizing mode, it's I like to sometimes think of them as a bit of a bug bomb where you just you kind of drop it and hope that it creates it creates the conversation that you can just kind of step back from and observe. But this would definitely be one of those topics where I I would feel I would be very impulsive. I would be and I would have to be checking how I'd be jumping in and out, especially and then add in your context. I can completely understand how um I completely understand how you know the conversations that happen in class, when they come back as a parent concern, it can be radically different than how it was actually introduced, but it won't matter. It, it just won't matter. You're sort of having to deal with the interpretation or misinterpretation outside of the class. Yeah. So you're on, you're on point. You're on point with that, I think.
1: And the, the other thing that started to happen a month later is that the students were starting to get fatigued on the topic. And I feel like... Like any issue, there were students who were still passionate about it and driven. And this past Wednesday, the 14th, was the National Walkout Day. And we, as a school, participated and had our own ceremony of sorts, which I would argue is not a protest or a walkout, which is what we said eventually. It became a student-led memorial, not a walkout. But And I think that the fatigue started to set in, that we had our same normal rage, and then – it started to die out so that even my own students who are used to having conversations with me and talking with me, they started to lose interest in it. They started to lose interest in the gun control issues, in the safety issues. And then they became more interested in this protest issue that sort of rose out of it as well. And are students allowed to protest and do they need administrative support to protest? So it it shifted another direction in the last few weeks as well. So it's kind of... Like I said, I, I mean, I hate to repeat myself, but it's really been an interesting path to get us where we are right now.
0: So, what? Let's say it in let's let's take it back three weeks, three weeks and change. At that point, what? What was sort of like some of the most feral angles that were popping out of this, that those ones that just were lighting people up, It th- becomes kaleidoscopic, multi-sides, everyone wanting to sort of have a, a position that they can feel like they can hang on to. What were some of those feral angles that just felt like these could go in any direction that maybe been light. they were sort of lighting up a lot of different people equally. They were ne- not necessarily partisan, just they the, the
1: that, Issue could have grabbed anybody. Do you remember what was popping up immediately? The the immediate driver of the discussion were the Parkland students themselves speaking out and speaking out so directly and bluntly in a way that politicians have never done. And even school leaders and sheriffs and everyone else who's normally on the scene of these kinds of events, they don't respond in the way that these students did. And these students came out right away and said, guns are the issue, period. And that is, I think, what dropped the bomb, as it were. And that gun control issue, which is something that has always been a powerful issue for people in the U.S., has always been a a divisive issue where I wouldn't even say kaleidoscopic as much as I would just say black and white, because it doesn't seem like we have a lot of nuance in that discussion. Um, But. Uh, that is the issue that right away is what should gun control look like or should it even exist and the the response of the the polarizing response of well the solution to gun problems is more guns or the solution to gun problems is less guns and that's where i think that's probably the the most feral angle is that gun control issue
0: mhm and so with within that So just side note, so in me trying to wrap my head even more just about the broader, let's say, North American context that this exists within, it was interesting to me, um, and even in my trying to wrap my head around this, not even knowing the exact questions to start doing research on it um, without being pulled into the gravity of, let's say... um, a, a very specific kind of context. So I tend to, I tried to find multiple newspaper postings. I tried to look at social media. Like I just tried to confuse myself basically with information so that I didn't land anywhere in particular. One of the places that I did step in, though, was looking at the context of gun ownership between, let's say, Canadians and, and Americans. And both of our contexts have this idea of um, hunting for gun ownership and both of our contexts have this idea of being a collector. But what seems to be a really fascinating tipping point is that Americans also have the context of defending yourself as a specific sort of entry point into you know the the three different reasons that you would have have a gun and it was it was interesting to see how those, three spaces played out in some of the media that I was observing coming out of um, out of the States. And it tended to be um, leaning quite heavily on, on not the, like I, I didn't find anybody coming out coming out of the Parkland conversations. I didn't hear anybody really speaking to support being a collector. Like that just seemed to be like, yeah, n- no one really wanted to touch that. But there were conversations around still needing to defend yourself
1: and also the impact, well, what if you're a hunter? You know, it, and I just I, it's interesting. Go ahead. No, sorry. I, you sent me that article um, about would Canadian gun laws have helped, and I have to point out as a side note, it's a great article. One thing I don't like, and I I mentioned these in DM, but also is it mentions by name and the stats of each one of the killings or each one of the tragedies, which I'm 100 percent against um, in terms of having these conversations, because that's giving the publicity to the person that wanted it. I, uh, one of the things I say all the time is that we personally can help with is not naming and not ranking all these shootings. Um, we don't, I don't name the shooter. I won't include his, their photos in anything I tweet out or write. And I also don't talk about rankings. I don't say worst and, and highest number and stuff like that. So I thought it was a great article. And what it did point out to me was that, that, that self-defense issue. And it's funny because almost every person I've ever discussed this with, In the US, self-defense is always the first argument. That Second Amendment gives us the right to bear arms so that if our government were ever against us or we needed to defend ourselves, it's hunting is so secondary. It's not until you've dismantled every one of their self-defense arguments that they finally go to, well, but I like to hunt. And then it's like, okay, well, I can't help that you like to hunt. I can't change that you like to hunt. I'm never going to change your mind there. I'm from Georgia. I grew up in the woods. I also like to hunt, but I don't like to hunt at the cost of 17 lives. That is not how much I like to hunt. And we have other solutions to get me meat. Like It's not necessary. And so it's interesting in the US that it's almost always that self-defense issue. It's almost always, well, if we take our guns away, then now how am I going to defend myself? And it's almost never the target practice side, the fun side, the collector side, and it's almost never the hunting. Those all come secondary after number 1, I have a right to defend myself. And in the US that's the context.
0: Can would you be able to could you speak at all to why that is so intoxicating? Why that angle? Is it is it because it's almost indefensible? Like if you were trying to counter it, it's like, well, at the heart of it, I have to be able to, I need protection. That's a basic human right. And it's, it's in the paperwork.
1: So, so there, is it, is it that simple or is it it more going on there? I think ultimately it is. And I don't, I'm not someone who wants to wholeheartedly blame the National Rifle Association. Um, They are only one piece of the puzzle. Um, But let's just say for sake of simplicity, if you're the person that says, I want to make sure I always have my guns. And let's say you have a lobbying arm or a political arm or the NRA or whatever. The easiest argument to get people on board with is the government doesn't want you to be able to protect your family. They want your kids in danger. And how do you fight that, right? Like, how do you fight that that that, I don't know. Propaganda, I guess is probably the best way. Well, I almost call it may- mania. I would I would push it in a
0: little bit more. Propaganda, sure, as the sparking point, but then it, it taps into a certain mania. It taps into family values. It taps into why you might have an alarm system on your house, and you you know all these other sort of um, fear based.
1: Well, not fear-based mania. And as soon as you hit on those fear-based manias, you shut down logic. Like That's the way our brains work. We can't think logically when we're afraid and when safety is a concern. I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like You have to actually feel safe before you can start to do any higher order thinking. And if you're arguing that taking these away is eliminating that safety, now I'm afraid and I'm not going to logically process the information that someone's presenting to me when they say, okay, yes, I see what you're saying. However, reducing the number of guns on the market legally also reduces the number of guns out there illegally. Like the logical arguments don't get into your brain because you have all that fear blocking any clear thoughts. Mm-hmm. So
0: with a, with a nation triggered, if we're following that, that brain science a little bit, okay. The, the amygdala, we're triggered right now. What's, what's getting obscured, So if, you know, you have these snap decisions or rash decisions, what what are you observing is kind of being obscured in this, that stuff that you just, the parts of it that you just can't get to. I sometimes liken it to, you know, working with some students that may have, they may have an LD of some some sort, but surrounding that LD is uh, behaviors that have they could be coping or defense or just scaffolded behaviors that are wrapped around that LD. And, And sometimes in conversations with my colleague, I'll say, you know, we have to try and get through the behaviors first in order to deal with the actual LD, because it's buried deep inside of, um, you know, whatever defense mechanisms, fear responses, stress responses, all these things that you see when the student's actually in the classroom. So we take that same idea and kind of wrap it around the, um, you know, the, the guns in schools, what's what's getting obscured in this? What's getting buried down deep inside that, you know, it'd be kind
1: of cool if we could start to work on that too. I think if you go back to my, my statement about not being kaleidoscopic and being black and white, I think to me, that's what's getting obscured is this is not a black and white issue. This is not a group of people saying, I want every single gun I can possibly get my hands on, and then also a group of people saying no one should ever own a gun. Yes, there are people on both of those extremes, but neither of those extremes are necessarily the solution. They might be, but they're probably not either one of them. What is getting lost is that middle ground. And so people say gun control or common sense gun reform and all the the NRA gun carrying, re- typically Republican members are hearing is they want to take my guns away. And when the NRA members are saying, hey, we want to make sure that there's some actual legitimacy to these laws, all the left-leaning, let's take all the guns away people are saying, see, they want to just keep all their assault rifles and don't care if people die. And it becomes this whataboutism. And, and one of the tweets you included was that uh, the one about the dog, the dog that died on an airline. And two days later, there's a law passed to say that you can't put dogs on an airline. And everybody's jumping down their throats going, oh, you one dog dies on an airplane and immediately there's a law, but 17 kids die in Florida and no one cares. And it's like, okay, but that's whataboutism. That their two things are not actually connected. And I know that it can seem frustrating that they are, but they're not. They're not actually connected. And so what you lose is some of that common sense gun law. And what I've been able to do, and here's an argument that I've been using recently, is one of the things that happens in the state of Florida that that comes up is there's this thing called the gun show loophole, okay? And when you start to talk to people about common sense gun law, they're like, no, you can't take my guns. You can't take my guns. like, I'm not trying to take your guns. Let me just explain this one law and why I think we need to look at it. In the state of Florida, there are gun shows, all over the place. In fact, in the Orlando area, there's the Central Florida gun show four times a year. So every three months, you can go to this gun show and go buy guns. And in the state law in Florida, there's the gun show loophole, which says that at a gun show like these that happens at the fairgrounds, you can privately sell your guns to any individual at this fairgrounds that happens to be there without a background check, without even checking for ID without checking their age, without doing any kind of paperwork or research whatsoever. So me personally, I could go to the gun show and I can buy a, let's just say a Glock, a Glock handgun, Glock 22 handgun, right? Um, that that's, you know, a 40 caliber handgun. I can go shoot up a school pretty quickly with that. It's got like 15 round magazine by default, you know, give or take. Um, I can go buy that gun at a gun show and then immediately step outside and upsell it for what I just paid. Say I paid 450 bucks. I can turn around and sell it for $500 cash to just whoever walks by. I don't know if that person's a criminal. I don't know if they have a mental health issue. I don't know if they're even 18 or 21 or whatever. And I'm not required to even ask any of those things to sell them that gun. And now I have legally purchased a gun and legally sold it, but that doesn't mean it's a legal gun. That could have been sold to someone who doesn't, who shouldn't own that gun. But there's no check and balance in place at those gun shows. So I think we could look around and go like, hey, maybe that thing needs to change. Maybe that thing is not okay because a criminal can walk into a gun show and just buy a gun, show, gun cash. And no one technically has broken the law except the criminal, who, again, is already a criminal, so probably is willing to break the law. So that whole bad guys will get guns no matter what. Yeah, but maybe we shouldn't make it so easy for them.
0: I get it. I get it. That was one of the things I came across and and the thing that is is not I I got to stop using the word mind-blowing because it's I'm starting to settle into this conversation a little bit is how different state to state th- those rules are. And I get it. I I I don't have a deep enough understanding of American um constitution or how how the states uh, was born, but I'm starting to understand just how almost oh fundamentally different the issues are dealt with on a state to- state basis. and I don't know if we have the same inconsistency here in Ontario on the same to the same degree. I'll say sorry in Canada to the same degree and I could be wrong. And if anyone wants to reach back out to me and say, yeah, you know, Clough, you just look at Ontario versus Alberta on this specific issue. But it seems like on some of these, what I would call a far more um, incendiary topic that tends to have a little bit more consistency in Canada. And it's in these spaces. I completely agree with you. Like I, if one, I don't hear, I don't hear in your, in your statement or argument that you're looking to take away guns. I think you're putting up reasonable protocols to make sure that the guns that are, that are being distributed, paid for, sold, moved, are all moving through legal checks and balances. Like that, that strikes me as rational thinking, completely rational thinking. The, um, that, that, so, how do you position then, education within a, well, I would not even say a conversation like that. I can't even imagine what that would look like, especially if you're, it's Wednesday and you know, that gun show is coming up on the weekend. Um, but in, in the broader sense, I'm trying to get a feel for how education can play a role. I was watching some, it's, a, I, I won't, I won't, would never dare to say uh, play a role in fixing this, but play a role in being able to speak more directly. To it, I was watching some footage on. I think it was on 60 Minutes. Is it uh, Emma Gonzalez? Yeah. Is am I might get getting... So Emma Gonzalez was was on there, and she had her she had her soundbite, and then her mom was on afterwards, and her mom talked about how her daughter's going out there and kind of being the face of this, and and you know getting in people's faces and generating conversation, and she she kind of spoke to her concern that that the children are having to do this and mom in a very wholehearted moment said we should have been out there ahead of them not behind them she said i'm i'm completely cognizant of the fact that i i support my daughter and i do everything to support my daughter and i would do anything for her but she's moving ahead of me now and there was sort of a a pause there a bit of a beat and then she said we should have been out there first and it gave me a real moment to think about this as a teacher and educator because we're we're we are out there in some ways ahead of the families, like we're in this space ahead of the families. And it made me think about how does education position itself to, I guess, get to these issues first before, and it's not, get to the conversation first. Can EDU do anything um, responsive, less reactive than what we've seen so far? What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think we're if you if you say can EDU do anything, you have a you have a disconnect here because if I'm a if I'm on the board of education for a district or a state, or if I'm a superintendent of a district, then I probably don't want to go anywhere near this thing. And I don't want my students going anywhere near it. I don't want my teachers and I don't want my administrators going anywhere near this thing because it's I mean, it's kind of a ticking time bomb. It's going to infuriate people because it has become so polarized. It's going to make people angry. So in terms of could we do something? Yeah, absolutely. We could We could build that discussion. We could put the framework in place for that discussion to happen because you know as well as I do, if you've had those kinds of discussions with your students, not even about guns, but just about politics in general, if you have political discussions with your students, nine times out of 10, you're listening to their parents' voice coming out of their mouth. You know, you're listening to their parents' mm-hmm. words because that's kind of what they're around. And we could have a whole different discussion about social media, not necessarily putting new ideas in their head and the, the vacuum that's created and those things. But mostly you're hearing their parents' opinions because that's what they've been exposed to. And the friends of their parents who most likely agree with their parents. And so they get that sort of one-sided position. And I think that the first step we have to do as teachers is is start those discussions. And it's important that we start those discussions and we bring them from a place of fact. And I think we can't keep living on the three topics you don't discuss about with your girlfriend's father the first time you meet him or religion, politics, and guns. Like You can't keep living on that. We have to have those discussions because the classroom is not dinner with your potential father-in-law. It's the place to have discussions. That is what it's if you give me 30 kids who are gonna to listen to me or listen to each other, then let's talk about something worthwhile. You know, and I think that is the first step is we need to have those discussions. We need to provide them with facts on both sides of the aisle. We need to provide them with unbiased standpoints, we need to provide them with outside sources, and we need to let them make some decisions. And you need to expect them to back those decisions up with the facts, not back those decisions up with, well, my dad said, Or and also avoiding the anecdotal. And that's another problem that happens so often is, well, my dad owns guns and no one's ever stolen any of his guns. Well, great. You know what? I own guns and I've had one of my guns stolen and I'm a responsible, well-trained gun owner. And I've still had one of my guns stolen. So the anecdotal doesn't fix anything. We need to look at the facts, the big numbers, the realities. We need to compare the US to the other places that have better gun controls. We need to compare the US to Canada. We need to compare the US to Great Britain, to, you know, to Australia, to places where they have gun laws in place. We need to compare the US to any other first world country and start to look at those numbers because We keep looking at these individualized examples, and even the school shootings, for example, they're still individualized examples. Those 17 deaths in Parkland, ultimately, while they're awful, in terms of the number of gun deaths that occur in the U.S. every year, it's a drop in the bucket because there's a bigger issue going on that's not being addressed. And so what either you can do is start those conversations. Is give the kids the facts and let them make decisions on their own and then make them support those decisions. It's um
0: it I've I've thought often about this in my in my teaching career. I've I've wondered, I've sat in class after listening to students talk about things and you know, you also always have this, there's always some some issue, some broader issue that's kind of percolating at district or board level. So that sort of awareness of what's happening in your classroom and the parallel of what's happening in the system. As the educator, you're often kind of of two minds. Like you sort of, you're you're in some ways filtering out the, the board position so that it becomes something that can actually be managed in the classroom and this could be whether or not leadership is changing in your school board or district or whether or not um, there's a hot topic that you're you're being given some recommendation on how to approach it and i always wondered i have i've i, I wondered this a lot and not just in this particular context why we don't see more students protesting and 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 i and i I think that with my sort of um, very controlled kind of teacher hat, and I think to myself, you know, this, they they should be getting more upset about this. And I distance my own sort of ego and emotion from like students should not like this. They should not like this as a rule. They should not like this as a, as an idea. Why don't they protest? And I've started to wrestle with my own pedagogy and trying to connect the dots as to whether or not as you said conversation in the classroom which is awesome must lead to action and i've started and i've i've become kind of fascinated with it because i i saw in some of the some of the postings around this that some of the school responses to the students participation in the walkout was to give detentions. And in another context I saw that they actually offered the choice was um detention suspension or getting the um like the belt, like corporal punishment. And there's some real fascinating conversations that happened down down that path. I was, you know, reading parent posts about how they supported their kid, if my kid wants the the strap or the switch or whatever, that I support them in it. And I was just like, wow. And somebody mentioned that whole um, the the oppression that can happen within pedagogy, and I bring it back to that: should conversation naturally lead to action out of the classroom? And I wonder, I wonder about that. I wonder about that teacher who, which I don't know is me. I don't know if that teacher is me, but I wonder about that teacher. That that is a clear, clear pathway that they are they're making sure that when there's a when there's a, a conversation around this that it doesn't sort of die on the floor. It is then brought to that next conversation and then more people are brought in and then you have the momentum coming about it and i come back to why aren't there more student protests
1: how is it that how is it that it takes the big ticket items to sort of trigger well i mean we've trained them to not speak until they're called on i mean that's what we've that's essentially what we've trained them to do. Because we have to, and I don't even want to say that's a bad thing necessarily. I I understand why that's the case. Because when you have twenty five kids in a classroom, you need a management strategy. Because there's only one of me and twenty five of them. I have to have a way to manage that discussion. I would do the same thing with adults or anyone else because they're going to be difficult to manage if you don't have a system in place. I mean, that's I get where it comes from, but we also need to sort of explain to students that. There is other ways There are other ways. There's other things they can do to speak out. And I think that's what we saw with the students of Parkland saying, no, we're done. This is enough. We've hit the line. and it, And it probably did take that line for them to finally say, I'm willing to take the switch, if you will. I'm willing to take the detention or the suspension. But I still don't think that the majority of students feel that way. And that's what's what's scary is, okay, so let's look at Parkland, for example, right? Like Parkland, I, I don't know the number of students that go to that school off the top of my head, but I know that there's about five or 10 faces that really represent the movement that is happening right now. That is not really a significant percentage of that student population. Now, I also know for a fact that there are lots of other students involved on the back end and doing things as well, but those are all low risk actions, right? They're involved on the back end where they're not putting their face out there. Emma is not she's going to be a recognized face for a very long time. They, people came out and directly attacked David Hogg as a crisis actor and everything else, because they didn't want him to continue speaking. And other people in this process, there's been other students as well. Cameron has been heavily attacked as well. And so the students that came out got attacked. There's a risk involved, right? And We don't encourage that risk in our classrooms. We don't encourage that kind of thing. And how quick is our administrative team to respond when something is out of place? You know, if a kid is two minutes late to class, someone's on the radio going, hey, why is that kid wandering around? Somebody go get him. Give him a lunch detention. He's late to class. Like, maybe he had to go to the bathroom. Maybe he had a bad day. Maybe there's a million reasons he's late to class. But we're immediately going into conformity, conformity, conformity. And so we're not encouraging students to speak out and be be open minded, and so we can't really expect them to think that. Oh, well, these are the times we're allowed to not follow the rules, and these are the times we're not allowed to not follow the rules.
0: And and that led me to you know another sort of space of observation where I was I was wondering whether or not. So some of the suppressive tools, whether it's media or just individuals or, or the system, the school board, if those were being activated because the individuals speaking up were not used to hearing the voice. So it was sort of like there was no, there was no, it was, it was almost like a, a foreign, a foreign tongue to us. Or if it was because it was almost like a betrayal as in they were breaking rules and just not coming back across the line. Or if it was more about they actually did have valid points that if given space could
1: fundamentally really create change. I, I, and again, I'm coming. For, sorry, I, I tend to lean towards the third. I, I feel like these students had a valid argument. They had a powerful voice. They were speaking. I had a conversation with one of my students actually about this in that they weren't speaking in a foreign tongue. Um one of the students at my school, as a result of our walkout, there was a lot of um, backlash—not a lot, but a, a good amount of backlash on our Facebook page for our school. And parents were upset and angry. But then other parents were jumping all over the parents that were angry, like this is like they should have the right to speak. They're the ones in the school that could potentially be shot up. They should be able to speak. And you know, so there was parents going back and forth. And one particular comment was just nasty, and one of the students at my school commented with her Facebook account on that Facebook comment of this parent. And I read it and it was powerful and it was great. But I replied to her and I said, Hey, I don't normally reach out to my kids on Twitter, but I liked that you said something, but there's a couple things I wanted to point out. And it's like she, in her reply, she used emojis and she, they were appropriate, but only if you understand that language. And she said like, made it in a way that an adult could easily discard it because of the way it was said. And I think what happened with Parkland is they weren't speaking like teenagers. They were speaking with the with the authority and intelligence of adults. So I don't think it was a different tongue. And, and I don't believe that it was that they had just crossed the line and stepped over. I, I think it was because they were making valid, rational arguments and the only way to shut rational arguments down if you don't have a true counterpoint is to go after the speaker instead of going after the, the, the argument. And I think that's what the response was. And what I worry about is that while the Parkland students are amazing and I'm blown away and impressed by them, what the students outside of Parkland are seeing is the kind of backlash you can get if you speak out. And that focus on the negative of, well, they just claimed that guy wasn't even a student. They said he's an adult and he's a pretend and I don't want to be attacked. And I don't, I don't know that I could stand up for this. I don't know that I could do all this. And and again, it just breaks the rules. I don't want to launch the tension. Like, as stupid as it is, me as an individual student speaking up isn't going to change anything. And I really want to have lunch with my friends tomorrow. So yeah, I'm going to probably not do that. And I don't think it's as simple as the apathetic teenager that we want to paint and believe that the problem is kids nowadays don't care. I, I think it goes deeper than that. It's, um,
0: and then it, it, it will go back to that that um, pedagogy and protest kind of stuff. You as the educator, where when you see the interest flagging in it, and, you know, what could be the measured response in there? Because I've had that exact, like I've had conversations where I've said, you know, we've put every possible, every possible to this point, um, opportunity and tools have been put on the table for student X to pursue opportunity Y. But they at this point are choosing, they're, they're choosing not to. They've said it. They said, yeah, I just, I don't want to go there anymore. It shouldn't change the fact that we should still provide that again and again and again. The choice not to pursue the options doesn't mean we should pull the options from the table. But I wonder in this context, if you are one of the educators in that space that's saying, you know, you you might want to just keep paying attention to this a little bit. I wonder about the perception there, as in, have you then, would you be perceived as having switched agendas there where you're actually kind of projecting your own versus supporting the student voice? And it's an interesting space. I I think maybe teachers would feel um, some interesting feels there where the, the momentum starts to slow down a little bit and you, you ask yourself an honest question, do I have, do, should I inject myself a little bit more into this just because in the broader picture, it really isn't settled or solved or even, you know, on, on, on track towards a better conversation.
1: Well, I can tell you, I, I dealt with this very personally last week, um, Wednesday was the national walkout day and our students at our school prepared a event as the walkout. It was sanctioned by our administration and the district early on as saying, we are, you know, opening it up to schools to participate. They're allowed to administration agreed on a time for them to do this event. And then as that all happened in the middle of February, right after Parkland. And then as we got closer and closer what the students were being allowed to do with their protests changed. And they were being reined back in to more of a, wouldn't it be better if we had more of a remembrance ceremony of the victims? Let's not focus on the divisive issues and upset people. Let's remember the victims. Let's do our thoughts and prayers. And that's kind of where it went. And alongside that, Initially, our principal went on the PA the first couple days after Parkland and made a comment about, we love that the students are speaking up, they're actually pushing for change, this is an issue we need to be discussing, let's do this, and then by the time we got there, he had been reined back in by probably people above him, I assume. And then on Monday of last week, an email went to our staff, and I later found out it went to pretty much everybody in the district with the same verbiage, saying that teachers are absolutely forbidden from participating in any of the events occurring during the March, the walkout day on March 14th. It was very explicit and literally like highlighted in yellow. You are not allowed to participate or make a political statement in any way whatsoever, basically, is what it said. It's not a direct phrasing, but it it was that direct. Um... And I found myself in a position where I 100% believed in and supported what that event was, what the March for Our Lives people are doing, and what is happening in this global national or national discussion. And I 100% supported them. And I wanted to show that support by being there with my students side by side, supporting them in their decision to protest and to walk out. But at some point, it's not even a walkout anymore. And I then had to deal with the fact that if I do that, I'm directly going against what my administration has told me to do, what my boss has told me as an employee to do. And so I had to deal with exactly that. At what point am I supporting my students? And at what point am I just being going against school board policy and my administration? And where are those lines? And if those lines are that blurry for me as a teacher, they have to be blurry for our students.
0: Like I said, there's that teacher out there. I I want I want to meet I want to meet the teacher that that can take their brave with them. And it is simple for them. And in it being simple for them, it doesn't make it any less complex for me. But it's simple for them where they're they're prepared. They say, Yeah, I'll I'll cross that line. I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna go there. And they're not gonna question it. And and it it's just it's fascinating when we talk about, you know, we just touched on that idea of how we've trained the students for compliance. Um, that that's a all-encompassing operating system that impacts all of us in some way, right? That we're to question, you know, at what point is this in? Is yeah, the question kind of comes down to at what point are we no longer in service to the students? And it's not that we would ever not be, but it puts that question on the table. Because it could so easily be framed as, well, the teachers, maybe you shouldn't participate because we need you kind of on hall duty. So they can swing it towards safety stuff. Or, you know, there's these other things going on. We're going to sort of, uh, we need to have support in this other space of the school. Like, it's easy to shape it with some EDU euphemism system of control.
1: Right. But at the at the end of the day, it's still that system of control, right? Like, it's still, yes, so. we do also need people to monitor for safety but the added benefit is our teachers aren't getting involved and now we have one less issue to deal with later on.
0: The political. That political, uh, it's been charged politically. Um, Just a, a sort of a, a side note, when you talk about how the, um, you know, looking to, when part of my approach in trying to find out about this, like I said, I got grabbed from multiple sources and I wondered about You know, you go in and do the, there's that exercise of plug a keyword into Google and see what the top hits are. I mean, you can do some really cool kind of found poetry stuff that way. But in putting in, um, I've checked in on just dropping in Parkland into Google and the videos. And looking at the evolution of what is the top hits as far as with the titling of Parkland. And it's becoming more and more from the feed that I'm getting that they are um, mainstream media are sort of the top hits. There's less what I would call kind of some of the guerrilla media where it's it's on the ground, individuals posting videos and such. And um, it struck me, one of the recent videos that um, was sort of packaged, I imagine it was repackaged because it was uh, it was Emma talking on stage to uh, an NRA representative. And I think this is a dated, I don't, I, I don't remember the date on it. Um, It's repost is current, but the footage is earlier. But just before that, there's a video bumper. And the video bumper was a commercial. And it was primarily text. And it was uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And I thought to myself a couple different things. How... How did that come to be? How did an advertisement that was white lettering on black background get put before the issue in this case? Because in my mind, it automatically connected the two events automatically. I didn't see it as a commercial, an innocuous commercial. And it, it it, it again, kind of how we said near the beginning of this conversation, it all of a sudden relit this topic but in a completely confusing manner, because as you said, it's not a simple conversation where you can say it's it's just it's it's just the gun or it's it's just the, um, we haven't touched on this, but it's it's not just mental health. like there's so many different pieces to it. And I really was bothered by one, the fact that someone that that someone would think that that type of an advertisement hadn't like they hadn't considered that impact of putting a Vegas um, and like a almost saucy, secretive tongue in cheek quote before a discussion on gun control. And if it, if it was intentional, wow. If it was accidental, wow. But then it also speaks to, I mentioned this earlier about that too soon. Are we now in a space a month later where we're going to tolerate that type of encapsulation of this issue? Where we're going to look at that and kind of go, ah, it's just advertisement, doesn't mean anything. Because guaranteed, if that, I'm sorry, I won't say guaranteed, but I would believe that there would be a higher likelihood that if there had been, you know, an advertisement like that within the week of the shooting, someone would have said, and there were no comments. There were no comments they are saying, how did that, how did that get juxtaposed? How did that, how did someone not notice
1: that? Well, I think you're also, you're, you're touching on the, the algorithmic nature of our world right now, right? Like, because to me, I'm sure that that ad was placed there by a machine, not a person. Um, and so that's where machines don't have the availability to recognize context. And I, I think there's probably an argument to be made that there's a connection there because the modern world as our students know it is so algorithmic. It is it is programmed and prepared. And that kind of goes back to that compliance thing, right? Like how do you break out of it? And the other thing you said that was interesting to me is The the change in mainstream media being the top result. Well, that's an unavoidable issue again because of the algorithmic nature. The fact that as soon as CNN or or Fox News picks up a report, they have a mobilized and active fan base who's going to go watch the stuff that they put out. So they're quickly going to overtake any sort of guerrilla journalism. And because again of that algorithmic nature, once one thing has more hits, it's now the top result. And so, how do you keep a movement going? From the gorilla nature, you you have to get that mainstream attention, but then you're no longer in control of your message because they can repackage it and rebrand it any way they want. And whatever ad happens to pop up pop up algorithmically throws up in front of it. So there, there's a there's a combination of systems that are sort of colliding in your in your anecdote there. And it's interesting to me that the way those connect. It um it makes me think
0: about there's a podcast. Mm. It might be note to self, could be the hidden brain. But on it, there was an individual that made himself invisible to the internet. Because for the last 16 or 17 years, um, he has asked his friends to tag every single picture that they post with his name. And in doing so, if you were to go in and look for his name, to look for him, you can't find him you can't find a picture of him because every single thing is tagged with his name and i'm starting to see that as being an interesting if you're going to if you're going to do the algorithmic hack is there a balance in there because my if if i would say primarily you know the the social media versus mass media i, I don't think people necessarily discriminate between the two anymore i think they just look at it as all social media it just happens that this is coming from CNN or this is coming from uh, CNBC or whatever but it just strikes me that there's there's got to be a way to 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 harness that that angle so that even if even if your um, your meta tags somehow are part of what gets you picked to be at the top of the food chain I just I go back to that guy's example like he's everywhere now and you wouldn't be able to find a picture of him necessarily. (laughs) But he's everywhere. If you put it in, he's there. And it's almost like washing the internet somehow. They need, I think, in order to get these on the ground reports still spinning through so that you can get at least a nice diverse idea of what's going on. Um, I get it. You don't have a, a management team, but that strikes me
1: as a tipping point that strikes me as a tipping point. Well, and I think going back to the how can EDU be how can EDU manage this? That's another fundamental skill that beyond just this argument, beyond just the gun control and and the gun issue, we need to be teaching our students of that that media literacy, that that critical literacy of being able to say, "Okay, who is publishing this? Why are they publishing it?" What is their bias? Because everyone has a bias. To say there's an unbiased source is unrealistic. So everyone has a bias. So how do you recognize their bias? And uh, I just had an interview recently with Meg Jones, who's who's big on this in, in South Florida. And she said at a ed camp I saw her, and she said that what, often what is omitted is more important than what is included in a piece. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really powerful way to look at it. And it's, it's true, we need to be teaching our kids, okay, here's what is said, what isn't said, why isn't it said, what is the bias, what is the standpoint this person's coming from, and then can you find something that shows the other side? Because with the amount of content created every day on the internet, someone has an argument against whatever you wholeheartedly believe to be true.
0: Yeah, I, as I mentioned to you in approaching this, I don't trust my feeds. So I fully recognize my bias is that I don't trust. <laughs> There's a lot, and I mean, when it comes down to it, my skepticism doesn't necessarily make things any clearer because I think that is what's that's the that's the fabric that you need to grab a hold of is the fact that your the the um, deductive nature of depending on specific feeds means that you're going to miss stuff. Even beyond what you're saying, where there's stuff not being provided, you're going to miss even more if you're only taking your news from one source. And I start to get the sense that in general, people don't like to be confused. So they're going to latch onto one source and make that, you know, primacy there. They're going to just, that's the place they want to get their news from. Um, For me, it's more about, I need to be confused enough that yeah I can sort of shake myself out of that mindset like that that I'm beholden to one source for my information. And if I take it all the way back to where we started, I think that was also a, a bit of my my need in in talking to you. Um because I felt in a lot of ways, again it's another it's another source, but I also I I knew I didn't know. I, I hoped I hoped that you would be open <laughs> To, to, to this discussing it, right? Because in a lot of ways, dude, you and I could have met a lot sooner and talked about a lot of other things right. You know the, the, the fact that like our spheres overlap in a way that is 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 very convenient and and safe and sort of just talking about edu. Um, it was interesting when this came to mind I thought I wonder I wonder if I wonder if this could be the conversation that he and I could have. Can I ask you one more? Absolutely. One more, one more question. So, just as we we're in your space right now, you you'll be returning to school after a, a deserved break, um, and I'm just curious as to the f- the framing of the returning to school and whether or not this conversation, as it was left, or as it, you move forward, is it is it actually a conversation about education? Because I feel compelled, and where we started with this is my uh, me wanting to be able to speak to this, not in a decisive end of conversation kind of way, but if given the opportunity, and and I could, and I found myself in there, could I hold the conversation and respect the the content and sort of uh, I would say almost dutifully play an active role in it in a way that doesn't push it too far according to what my agenda is like there's I really did and I'm still not sure how to talk about this I still feel like you are like we're in a very safe space here but um going back in I'm going back to school next week and I know there was there's there this conversation is sitting there it's there in the classroom for me to return to one of the questions I asked myself is this an edu conversation is it about edu
1: I, I don't think I think I think in the US this conversation has very much become about EDU. Uh if you look at the number of mass shootings and tragedies in the US, they are not all schools, but schools are one of the the hot buttons because again, talk about protecting your kids, and that's when people get emotional, right? Like that's so it so it becomes about EDU, even though at least for the US, there is a bigger conversation beyond education. And, I think it is imperative that we as teachers have the conversation with our students, however, because for our students, for our children, we are the closest thing to an unbiased standpoint they get because they hear their parents every day who have their own opinions already. And most parents, through no fault of their own, are not necessarily – coming at it unbiased, they're not coming at this discussion with their kids saying, "How do you feel? Here's two different articles for you to read, son." They're coming at it as, "Oh, those stupid pundits are believing blah 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 blah" because everyone has an opinion and it's a strong opinion right now. So, so I can't speak to Canada, but I think in the US it is important, it is critical for us to have this conversation. Because we can give both sides, even if you don't go so far as I do, which is to say that not only should we have the conversation, we should be involved in it. And that's where I stand. But we should at least have the conversation so that students are being presented with a different view. And and like you said, in the US, we're so state by state and geographical and, and even within a state, county by county. And there are not a lot of dissenting opinions being thrown around out there. And I think it's critical that that we allow our students to hear dissenting opinions. I think that's important. And so, it isn't necessarily a conversation about EDU, but it is a conversation for EDU.
0: Yeah, I'm looking for that edge to lift. What's the edge that you lift on this? Just to get some light under it, and what's, where to start, you know what I mean? Where to start with it?
1: I, I know one of the places I have started with it is is some of the graphics that have been put out. And if you look at, um, I believe the Twitter account is Everytown at Everytown. They put out a lot of really good graphics that have have a powerful impact, and I think they're a good place to start um, because number one, they're fact; they are they are based on real numbers, and they're an easy place to say, "Okay, this is true." Why is it true? And that's where that discussion can start because everyone's going to have a different opinion about why it's true, and then you can you can build it from there. I like it. I'm going to check it. I'm going to see also if there's something, uh, if there's Canadian content there. Do you think it's specifically American? It, it is pretty specifically American. I I did not look to see if there was Canadian content. There may be, but I know it is based out of the U.S. Um, a lot of the graphs and stats, though, do compare the U.S. with many other countries, and so Canada is included in a lot of those stats as well. It's just not quite as eye-opening as when you look at the American bar being from the top to the bottom of your screen and all the other first world countries are just little blips at the bottom of number of deaths per year and stuff like that.
0: Got you. Leap off point from the states into other data points. Yep. All right, sir. I really appreciate you spending this hour with me. Hey, absolutely. Cool.
1: Glad you had me, man. I'm, this is a top, powerful topic for me right now yeah and, and
0: and for me, and like many of the conversations like this um it doesn't it doesn't make it there's definitely no um simplification here uh a part of the the process of even getting into these conversations, at least for me is asking what seems to be obvious what seems to be obvious and hoping that someone can make it a little bit more complex and you have done that <laughs> yeah yeah. And uh, No, and at, at the end of the day, I'm cool with that because, again, I, I now have more work to do to sort of figure out, um, you know, who I am, who you know, what's the human that's going to be representing this? And, and is that is that position going to feel slightly different when I'm putting on the parent hat versus the teacher hat versus if I could just be the human at the front of the room? so in the next opportunity so very grateful brad thank you for spending that time with me um just where would you like to be found i'm hoping someone's gonna reach out <laughs> <clears throat> sorry someone's gonna want to continue this i know i'll probably reach out again to once more but where would you like to be found if someone wants to have a further chat about this uh
1: best place to find me is always twitter i'm at brad schreffler and my show, The Planning Period Podcast is on iTunes and everything else. You can just search for Planning Period Podcast. I would encourage, especially after people are listening to this, if, um, if there's people that are more interested in this discussion, I've done a couple episodes on this. But one I really want to point out is episode 41, which is the school safety plan I just released as we're recording this. I just released it. It is entirely about actionable steps to perform as teachers in your school If you were happening to be at a school where a shooting is occurring or an active shooter situation occurs, I spoke with Chris Nyanusi, who's absolutely brilliant on school safety. And we talked about how to make sure you and your students survive in one of those situations. And it's a very powerful discussion. So if this has got you thinking and you want more actionable stuff, I would encourage you to check out episode 41 of my show, The Planning Period Podcast, or reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Brad Treffler. Very nice. Well,
0: sir, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and definitely enjoy your downtime. I will. I look forward. Yeah, I look forward to when you you and I can connect again. Uh, Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what topic this was? Yeah, all things considered, this this was this was definitely not the. um, This is. I will say for myself, uh, I'm I'm examining more, more and more the questions that I questions and ideas that I should be talking about, and my hope within it and anyone that's listening is that um, other people can activate that should as well and, and start to broaden, broaden some of the ideas that are kind of soaking into education, because this is definitely, this is a conversation um, regardless of your context, that there is no easy access point other than just finding someone trusted to start to talk about. So I appreciate you being that person for me today. Hey, I'm glad I could help. All right, man, take care of yourself you too. and uh, look forward to it. Look forward to when we talk again. thanks for listening to chasing squirrels podcast you can find other episodes on itunes and on podbean you ever want to connect with me you can reach me on twitter at chris j or you can reach out to me chris j at gmail.com